Hello and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge. I'm Liz Lopato. I'm the science editor at The Verge. And let's talk about climate change. Because uh, why not? The world is ending, um, basically, but I feel like we're, we, we just sped it up a little bit more. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Tell me, tell me about the Supreme Court right now. Oh man, so this is this is kind of a big bummer. Um, basically, what had been what had happened is that um, Obama had really tried to push through um, these climate change regulations that uh, would lead, hopefully, to cleaner air by basically the like most logical cutoff date for when we need to have clean air well the most logical cutoff date was a while ago but, right yeah <laughs> um but essentially to, to 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 bring us in line with you know what we were saying mattered and like you know to help scrub some of the um the pollutants out of out of the air um sure. and so the idea was that you know a, a carbon emissions um would be curbed from power plants basically and uh the U.S. Supreme Court has placed a temporary halt on that, which, um, if you read the Supreme Court tea leaves, doesn't look good because it means that they think that the people who oppose the Obama plan have a good enough um, train of thought that um, you know that 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 they're willing to take them seriously. Um, now, the clean agency or the um, clean power plan was supposed to cut carbon pollution about 32 percent below 20, 2005 levels by 2030. And what was that going to involve? Like what was how was that going to be done? Well, states were going to have to limit their use of coal fire power plants or shift to more efficient technologies at coal plants or figure out good ways to sort of clean some of the releases at the coal plants. Um, gotcha. Like you know, very basic stuff that like proven methods to to kind of slow some of this stuff down. Right. And it also would be bringing us in line with the efforts we see in other countries. Um, and so now it's on hold. Um, it's a 5-4 uh, halt. Um, so, you know, um, you know, utilities and, and coal miners are into it. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and, and is that is that the def- like the determining factor or is that the is 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 that still like a really I don't know. I, I is big coal really a thing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, All right. So, but the other thing is that 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 should be kept in mind is that this um, may undermine the U.S. commitment internationally to paring down greenhouse gas emissions um, as part of the Paris Accord in December. So, if we don't put this through, there's not a lot of pressure on. Uh, pressure on other countries to put it through either. So there is a whole cascade of effects that could happen from this. Got to be a good example. Come on, America. We've got the Super Bowl. We've got Beyonce. Like we're leading in so many other categories when it comes to um, (laughs) positive change. Oh, man. Beyonce (laughs) was so great at the Super Bowl. I didn't watch the rest of the game, but I liked her part. It was okay. It was bad. It was bad. Um, no, she was. She was. She was wonderful. Um, it's really fascinating, though. People are people are boycotting her too. It's like you know, people just actively don't want good things in their lives, whether it's uh, it's climate control or uh, or Beyonce or or Kanye West. Um, although I don't know, I'm I'm in a very conflicted place right now about this Kanye album. Um, I just I. I usually am so on board with him in general, like even at his most ridiculous and awful, I am just like a, a grateful for his presence in my life. But I don't know. He's been he's been kind of a little bit messy for me right now. Like I got to say, I maybe I would have appreciated this a few years ago, but I feel like I've grown up a little bit and I like I feel like he's a little messy. It's not even just messiness, (laughs) you know, because like the thing is, usually I I love that Kanye is willing to walk onto an awards show stage and say this is not where the award should have gone because it feels honest. You know, there's something very, very open and almost sweet about it. Yes, there's something very optimistic about it. I think people a lot of times see him as being a negative force, but I think in order to do that, you have to have like a great deal of optimism for what the world can be, you know? Yeah, this could be better. And like that's that's what's really sort of changed for me lately in, in, in dealing with Kanye. It's not like, you know, like it's not like I didn't know that his views on women were 
um, sexist because I definitely have heard Kanye's new workout plan. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, the stuff with Amber Rose and then Bill Cosby recently on Twitter just kind of was like, buddy, like, I, I know you know this is wrong. <laughs> I know yeah. you know this is wrong. Yeah, it's uh, that was a little bit out of the blue. It was a little crazy. Like I don't know. I feel like even the the Amber Rose stuff, which was like pretty misogynistic, that still felt like, even though I don't like that at all, it felt like it came out of a like we know that he's like completely illogical and crazy when it comes to Amber Rose. That that woman like completely, like I don't know. I don't know anything about the relationship, but he is still very very sensitive about it, and so you see him lash out. When it comes to her but like the Cosby thing is like what where did that come from I have no idea um yeah and and changing the album title every every five minutes like I don't know it's it's the life of Pablo now can I say something dark sure it feels like promotional strategy yeah I don't I don't want to I don't really want to accept that though I don't th- I I don't know. I think I think uh, I I don't I, you know. I get that thought out of my head. I don't. Want, I just want to hear the album. <laughs> I mostly just want to hear the album. I'm going to hear it today. I'm going to Madison Square Garden like after we record this. Oh wow. So, okay. Unfortunately, I won't be able to talk about it on this podcast. But next week, I can. Um, and we'll. I, I, I sh- and you will have heard it too. Everybody will have heard it next week. So we'll, yeah. we'll talk all about it. So I have two more really quick hits to get off. The first is that the strongest evidence yet has been found for Zika's role in birth defects. Um, essentially, there was a publish a publication in the New England Journal uh, last night. Um, I guess it's going to be Wednesday. Uh, rather than <laughs> this is going to release on Friday. I'm recording on Thursday. Um, but the strongest evidence that Zika is probably causing uh, the brain damage that we see in these infants who are born with microcephaly, which is um, a, an unusually small head and an underdeveloped brain. Mm-hmm. Um, they saw the virus replicating in the brain of a fetus that had been aborted. Um, with the mother had been um, exposed and probably infected with Zika. So the, the the baby also tested negative for um, all other possible causes because <laughs> there are a couple mm-hmm. of viruses that do this, um, and and they were not present in the in, in this baby's brain. But so Zika I thought sure it was. was I thought I thought it was fully determined that it did cause the microcephaly. Is this still up for debate though? Still up for debate. I mean, there have been a lot of warnings um, about the possibility that Zika causes microcephaly, and you know the Brazilian Minister of Health really like raised the flag early. But in terms of like definitive evidence, it's not there yet. Um, there's enough circumstantial evidence for, for people to warn travelers, particularly travelers who are pregnant or likely to become pregnant, um, you know, here in the U.S. and in five countries, um, public health agencies have told women to delay having children. Um, but, you know, it's not known like when the exposure needs to happen to create this this traumatic insult. Um, it's not known how many women who have... Um, Symptomless uh, Zika infections are also uh, affected. So there's a, there are a lot of unknowns about you know this link, which is is looking stronger and stronger by the day. Hmm. Um, I I think we got to move on. We've got to move on to um, to our first segment just because uh, just for time. time. We've got a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so you you published this report this week about. Um, a, a, there's been a string of sexual harassment cases um, within the science community, which is, you know, I think not a place that people usually expect to hear about this kind of thing happening. And uh, it seems like the kind of uh, this is at the this is at the American Nat- Museum of Natural History. But it that's seem, right. It seems like at a lot of these places, they aren't really equipped to deal with this stuff. Um, and the National Science Foundation, I guess, has to be the person like the, the a body that is negotiating this um i don't know tell me a little bit about what's going on well i mean i don't think this is going to come as much of a surprise to people to people to women (laughs) um and probably also to people of color especially um and probably particularly to women of color um i don't think it's going to be a surprise at all um i you know it's Women have been dropping out of the sciences for a long time, and over and over again they say, you know, it's an unhealthy environment, I'm being harassed, you know, I'm not welcome, people aren't, you know, helping me with my work, Uh, people are actively blocking my work. And so, in some sense, having these cases is, you know, the the thing that keeps happening with these guys is that they have multiple cases, it's not just one. It's like... 
women over the course of years have been complaining about them and nothing has been done because the institutions don't do anything. Um, you know, and uh, uh, what's frustrating to me is that uh, the, the institutions have strong incentive not to do anything because these guys bring in a lot of money. Right. So, um, you know, there's the astronomer uh, Jeff Marcy who's been accused of kissing and groping his female students, and there have been multiple claims, at, complaints at different universities. And, you know, he um, he pulled in a bunch of private money. He was worth a portion of the $100 million breakthrough prize and about a million from NASA, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a grad student coming to you saying, oh, you know, this this PI has, has been bothering me and you look at how powerful the PI is and how much money he brings in for the institution what is what is your plan of action going to be right <laughs> you yeah, know like yeah. and and also I mean it's, it's funny because it's all it's like an even more like a far more difficult version of I think the way this stuff gets ignored within sports is like oh well this guy puts points on puts points on the board as they say uh and so and he is worth a lot of money to us and uh he is you know he's got endorsements and all this other stuff like he this this one person generates a lot of income for a lot of different people and therefore right. they weigh the 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 value of this person in a, mon in a monetary form versus the the well-being of the people that uh he has abused or harassed or anything and 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 you know for a lot of people that's not a that's not a tough question that's <laughs> right <laughs> like um you know brian richmond the guy from um the american museum of natural history right like he is worth a uh, 1.2 million in funding from the national science foundation so is like the that... solution if you're getting harassed is it just to like get a bunch of endorsement deals <laughs> <laughs> god i wish that were that easy just right? up your market value just be like because, like, uh, the thing is, like, you know, it's not like people, it's not like it wasn't investigated. He was right. investigated multiple times. Yeah. That's where the news story comes in. Yeah. Because, you know, it, it, he he has, has, as far as I can tell, he's still working at the American Museum of Natural History. Um, he's still listed on these grants. I emailed a bunch of his collaborators to ask if they were willing to work with him. Only one wrote back and told me no. Um, so it's been, it's been... It's been frustrating in a way because we're just going to see these over and over again until academia gets its act together, um, you know, where it's just it's not one woman. It's a trail of women and it's a trail of women, all of whom have reported to the university, which is how people know that these things are happening. And then um, the university has has done nothing essentially to protect the um, the other the other students. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that may come across this person. Well, it seems um, like there needs to be a negative incentive, right? Like, if there's a positive incentive to keep them on because of this funding, there needs to be a negative incentive as far as, like, I don't know, like, do you boycott the museum? Like, there there has to be some way that people can send a message or have, you know, have it just, like, be a bad look to keep this kind of person on, right? Well, I think that's part of the reason why these cases are starting to go public in the news, because it is a really bad look to to have your, you know, institution in the headlines because you're aiding and abetting a harasser. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, it's just it's that's that seems to be what's what prompts a lot of these resignations, actually, um, is that a reporter calls. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there's that. No, that's good. <laughs> but it would be it would be nice if it didn't come to us. The thing is, I don't like writing these stories. I legitimately do not like them. I would rather right. be writing about anything else, anything else. And yeah. but it's news. I mean, this is news. It is news in the in in the way that the leaky pipeline is news. It's, you know, these these are people who are dropping out of the system who are talented and smart, and we know that because they got into the system in the first place, and who probably really genuinely love the thing that they're studying, and they're being forced out, over and over again, and it's women every time. Yeah. And I mean, this sort of thing impacts the the priorities of the scientific community on a really, really basic level, I would imagine. Just like who is staying in, who is made to feel comfortable with this, in this community would deeply impact what kind of work they're doing. Well, and, and yeah. And you have also like the thoughtful bros who are like, well, maybe women just don't like science. Just asking <laughs> questions here. Maybe they're just innately bad at it. And it's like uh, that, you know, that we can't even evaluate if that's true. Actually, look at like even if you have like negative, even if you have like negative stereotypes about women being like like uh, a little too fickle or nagging or something, those are actually great qualities for a scientist. Yeah, <laughs> those are. You want someone who's going to nitpick. Yeah, um, 
Man, well, this, uh, yeah, this is unfortunate. And, like, yeah, I think it's important to, to note, like, that we don't take, whether it's happening within entertainment or any other part of culture or science, like, the people who write these stories don't enjoy doing it. It's not like, oh, yay, another harassment story I get to write and get all fired up over. It's no fun to to, to, to think about this kind of stuff, but it's also something that we have to address. Right. Like, at all. And, you know, I, I, I sometimes get blowback when I, I write about this, or I, I wrote about James Watson a little while ago because um, he had said yet another, I forget whether it was a racist thing or a sexist thing because he says them to reporters so often. <laughs> um, but... Uh, you know, if you've if you've read biographies or you pay close attention um, to a lot of these quote unquote great men, you know perfectly well that they're not great at all. Um, not only are they human and flawed, often the flaws are enormous. And so one of the things that frustrates me is when people are like, "Oh, well, you're you're trying to ruin his reputation." And it's like, no, no, no. Mm-mm. I didn't. I'm not trying to do shit here. Uh, this guy ruined his own reputation, and I am merely telling you about it. Yeah, it's like it's it's just like this expectation that certain parts of people's lives should be kept secret or be protected in some way why why do they deserve it like why especially like you know all of these great men who like have done all of these things who routinely say racist and sexist things or well it's funny because i don't feel like science isn't this place that like a lot of pop culture stuff is where there is a large portion of the population that enjoys seeing these people be brought down i feel like a lot of science is still in this like oh they are doing science capital s science it must all be amazing and they must be perfect amazing angels oh yeah totally there's a huge culture of hero worship about scientists like you say write something even mildly critical of the work and people flip out yeah yeah it's all good it's all science science is great this is what frustrates me by the way we've, we've talked about it before but like like all cap science exclamation point that kind of science that's why it bugs me i feel like it, it's it's memifying science and like it discourages actually looking at stuff really critically yeah i i um, agree with that completely uh so uh from from badly behaving scientists we go to badly behaving record executives go um, on uh so there is a there's a television show uh premiering on hbo this weekend called Vinyl. It is executive produced by Martin Scorsese and Terrence Winter, the same duo that brought you Boardwalk Empire, a show I watched probably four episodes of, and uh, also Mick Jagger, who's famous for being in a band. And uh, (laughs) they've been working on this for a long time. This is actually Mick Jagger's idea that he, I think, started developing in like the mid 90s or something so this has been on the table for a while um and it also has been in development at hbo for a while i remember when this show first kind of the idea first got floated that 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 mick jagger and and martin scorsese were going to do a rock and roll show and i think it predated the announcement that uh there was going to be a, a, a hip-hop soap opera on Fox called Empire. Oh, my God. Um, and so I was like, I, I, I remember for a while thinking, oh, my God, there are going to be these two shows that come out at about the same time. And, uh, and like, you know, we'll have the rock versus hip-hop, like, drama wars. And one will be on Fox and one will be on HBO. And, oh, my God, the, cult, the think pieces write themselves. Um, but actually, it ended up being significantly later than um, Empire. Or I guess about a year. Anyway, um, the show's. Uh, well, what do you want to know about this show? It's. I have. I have one everything. Huge- I, I want. I, I'm curious to know, just for starters, like what? It, what is the promise? What is? What's the setup here? The setup is. Hey, hey, kids. Do you like Wolf of Wall Street? Uh, do you? Did you? Have you? Do you have? Uh, do you have Almost Famous on Blu-ray? Oh no! Uh, have we got the show for you? Um, it's. It's a, 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 a superbly well-made period film in the tradition of Boardwalk Empire and Mad Men. Mad Men is like the closest relative, I think. Um, but yeah, it's a uh, it's it's a morally compromised man uh, is boss at office in New York or East Coast town in fill in the blank time period. Does bad stuff, gets away with it. Uh, cast of characters, feisty female assistant trying to work her way up uh i don't know i could go on it's it's very very for something that was this long in development it's like oh you ended up making the same show that's been made a lot of times hmm. uh, hbo but um uh it it stars bobby cannavale which is like one of the 
the bigger pluses in it because he's a is he, he is a very appealing actor. He's mostly in supporting or kind of uh, sideline roles, and uh, this is his first big lead role. Um, and he is a record exec at a fictional record label that uh, has non-fictional bands on it, which is conf- kind of confusing. Hmm. Uh, like in the first episode, they're kind of courting Led Zeppelin. So an actor that's supposed to be Jimmy Page shows up and like it's uh, I don't know. It's <laughs> it's a weird combination of of fictional, and nonfictional, especially last week after we talked about the OJ show. Uh, it's like this is, I just feel overloaded with people pretending to be real historical figures. Mm, yeah, <clears throat> I, I'm 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 kind of getting exhausted by it, too. It just it feels like something that you that was something you weren't supposed to do for a long time because it's like inherently cheesy. Yeah, I think I think the OJ show uses it to interesting effect. I, I think like and somehow I feel like the stunt casting is what does it like it's this weird mirrors facing each other of celebrity culture type thing going on that I yeah. in the way that like TV can sometimes get very deeply meta just by showing a person <laughs> like, right like when you have or, or, or movies do this too um like uh, Iron Man a lot of like what you understand about the the playboy persona is informed by what you understand about Robert Downey Jr's playboy right. persona <laughs> yeah no, yeah, it's just like, well, who, you know, the person is not necessarily always acting, like, 100% or something. Like, their very presence is a, is kind of a part of the role. But, um, but so that's that's sort of a, a an odd thing about it. I mean, like, stuff like Almost Famous and, like, Velvet Goldmine, like, movies that take place in a similar era, similar kind of level of glamour and excess and all that. But they kind of hedge a little by having fictional bands mm-hmm. so they can kind of have some liberty with it. And this just dives right in. Like, we're going to have the New York Dolls. We're going to have Zeppelin. We're going to have uh, Alice Cooper. Like, all these people to show up and have, like, little B-plots within oh, man. You each know, episode. You know what I wish? Um, hmm. One of the greatest horror movies I've ever seen is Gimme Shelter. Um, oh, Wait, you stole that line from me. That's I did. <laughs> I stole it. It's totally true, though. It's so true. Because they're one is... of the scariest movies. Right. Well, it's the moment at the end where you realize they're watching the footage and you're watching the footage as yes. they're watching the footage is sort of the conceit of the documentary. And you realize that, like, they pull back and they're, like, watching a man die. And they're like, wait, hold on, rewind. Did that just happen? Yeah. That's awful. It's really legitimately awful. Like, it's also, like, like, a very literal rendering, like, very effectively of, like, what it is to realize like step back out of like something that's gone out of control in your life yeah like uh, it's really creepy (laughs) it's it's so horrible and like i just can't help but think like what if if you're gonna remake something with historical characters in the time period Mm. why would you not choose something like that where you Um, can at least get a slightly different perspective right. on, on those events, you know? I mean, as, as fun as it is probably to see somebody do an impression of Alice Cooper, um, I, I, I think that there's so many things from that period that have so much huge emotional and cultural resonance, um, at least because there are documentaries made or whatever, that, that you could be working with instead. Yeah, it's uh, so this actually brings me to my main beef with the show because the the like time period stuff is whatever it's not my cup of tea but it's so it's so it it, the show looks great and it feels very it's like the most realistic kind of period rendering of New York around that time that I've seen and I feel like like there are very subtle effects at work that make the city feel very like it feels like oh that's totally what like Times Square would have looked like then like it's dark it's sort of like weird and grimy um and not in like a set way but um but (laughs) my main my main complaint with this show is just the fact that it's about a record executive like of all these people that are in this world both fictional and non like the the most compelling storyline concerns a fictional band called the nasty bits that are supposed to be like like kind of a ushering in punk into the <laughs> scene and um they're like these british guys that like can barely pay, play instruments and but that that stuff is like it's interesting because it's like they can make their own plot it can be vaguely tied to something in history but they can also be original characters but the the fact that it's like still we need to focus on 
a really rich guy who rides around in a car with a chauffeur um, and does a lot of cocaine and goes out of control and does all sorts of crazy things that he can only do because he gets away with them because he's a powerful man and he worked his way up to the top. It's a very Scorsese narrative, um, and it's something we've seen him do many times before. And it just sort of baffles me that in this very colorful setting, like, believe me, like a, a well-worn, very well-worn territory, like we've seen stuff that takes place in this world before, but nonetheless interesting. It's very colorful. There are a lot of, like, crazy characters and whatnot. We still are with, like, the business guy, like the big money guy in a... Like with a chauffeur, <laughs> I would. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where like you want to know what the nasty bits are up to instead, because you're pretty sure that it's going to be more interesting, and also it's going to have more of a dramatic weight because there will be consequences, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like there's it, it does that thing that I just like. I'm actually really like it's it it's it's fun when you first see it like. The first time you watch Goodfellas or Casino or something where it's like some crazy violence is happening, something really, really insane and some jolly like Sinatra song or whatever comes on. Like that happens so much in this, except with like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Like with the Zeppelin song or whatever, like somebody's just beating somebody's face and like crazy fun rock music is happening. It's like this is it's what it's boys. It's men. They're just like doing their thing. And it and this time it's actually like enough is enough like I I I just I I feel like there were so many more interesting things you could focus on or glorify even uh that, well that are not I also it. think we're all and maybe unless you're male maybe maybe the men aren't as familiar but all of the rest of us are familiar with what stereotypical hypermasculine behavior looks like and what its consequences are because you're often on the receiving end of it Right. So, like, you know, to, that to, to, to me is one of those things where I'm like, this is not interesting. Like, yeah, this is literally not interesting to me. Like, this is this is, you know, this is not something that's new. or This is right. not escapism. This is not interesting. It's also like a lot of it takes place in an office. And my my boyfriend offered the interesting uh, and without having seen it, the interesting idea that maybe it is we keep returning to an office a workplace where this powerful man like is based and where all of his like underlings kind of hang out um in, in a similar fashion to mad men like we keep getting going back there because it makes the office life that so many actual men have feel like warranted or glorified still somehow like oh he he goes into an office just like me i'm just like this record exec like <laughs> oh man and so it's like it's like the bureaucratic hero almost yeah yeah it's like well i could never be a rock star like that that is so far from my my uh experience so but i could i could theoretically be that guy one day which is so it's so crazy still but it's it's the dream of capitalism you know <laughs> <laughs> the capitalist dream uh-huh well, speaking of men and misconduct, um, I, I have a guest um, who's going to be talking about men and misconduct, specifically in science. All right. Um, her name is Kate Clancy. She is a professor at the University of Illinois, Champaign, I believe. Um, yeah, Champaign-Urbana. Champaign Urbana. Um, yeah. And she uh, she studies sexual harassment and field work. Um, and in 2014, um, I guess that was last year, uh, she published a survey of 666 people um, and um, discovered that a about two thirds of anthropologists and other field scientists have experienced sexual harassment, which seems alarmingly high. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, about 20 percent of re respondents had re experienced unwanted contact. Um, so groping. <laughs> um, and half of the women who had been harassed uh, reported that their harasser was their superior, um, whereas men were reporting uh, harassment from their peers. So when we talk about uh, powerful men behaving badly um, and how there are no consequences to their actions, this is kind of what we're talking about. Right. Um, so here's Kate to talk about um, why we need to have consequences for bad behavior. Uh, well, Kate, I want to thank you very much for, for joining me. Um, you and I had a really sort of great discussion um, when, when I was reporting on the story um, earlier this week. So I, I thought I'd bring you back. Um, uh, just to open, is uh, do you remember about 10 years ago um, 
when when Larry Summers suggested that uh, the fact that there aren't a lot of uh, women in uh, in science are due to innate differences, is this something that you recall? Oh yeah, I'm an alum, so I I remember very well. And in fact, um, I think within a year of him making that those comments, um, my union I was a graduate student union at Yale. And uh, we came up and gave a talk about some of our results about the experiences of women in PhDs um, that are not explained by these innate differences. So I was already starting to do some of this work then. Yeah. I mean, because the thing is, to me, in retrospect, right now, um, between what's been going on in astronomy um, and the findings that you had a few years back um, in PLOS, it seems like there's a pretty good explanation, and part of the explanation is that when women are being systematically harassed out of the sciences. And like particularly um, in, in your findings, one of the things that was most remarkable is that it was the trainees especially who got the brunt of it from superiors. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about what that power dynamic is like? Sure. And I think what is interesting is that, um, you know, there are many different types of microaggressions, gender, uh, and, and, there's, and then, of course, there's, um, you know, the more hostile stuff that's related to actual harassment and assault and rape. Um, and it, it, it seems to me, at least from my read of the literature so far and from some of our results, that, um, you know, this rank hierarchy stuff um, is really where the gender violence seems to come out because of the fact that, you know, if you're in a more vulnerable position where your career very much rests on what the senior folks are going to do, and there is a gender difference in terms of um, just the proportions of people at each rank, uh, then you're going to see senior men um, abuse their power at times and, um, and systematically prey on the women that they encounter that are junior to them. And and one of the things that we discussed uh, that unfortunately didn't make it uh, fully into my article, I think, um, is uh, that the, the 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 system is built um, for compliance essentially for Title IX compliance. So there are all these resources that are offered to victims, which is great, but usually there aren't uh, consequences uh, for the, for the, for the perpetrators. Is is that a fair way of thinking about it? I would say so. Yeah, and I think the Brian Richmond story is a great example of that. You know, we have multiple times that he was investigated. Um, and as far as I know, he's still working at AMNH. He's just working off-site. Yeah, you know, I emailed um, <clears throat> some of his collaborators, people who are co-authors on grants that he has opened from the NSF, as well as some some um, former frequent co collaborators, I suppose I should say. Um, and I didn't hear back from the folks who were, were sharing grants with him um, at GWU. Um, at all um, about whether or not they were going to continue working with him. So that was that was something that struck me fun as being a little funny. I mean, possibly they just don't want to talk to the press at all, which is a legit stance. But um, I did hear back from another one of his collaborators, um, who who is at uh, Washington University at St. Louis, uh, David Strait. Um, who said that, you know, he was surprised um, to hear this, he's tightly entangled him with him professionally, and he's not going to engage in any collaboration with, with Brian in the future. Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm curious to know is if there's some way that, that the sciences can sort of self-police, um, maybe by ostracizing people who are engaging in this kind of harassment. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that's an important part of it. I think we also, uh, I think the ostracizing has to be um, I think some of these folks do have to put their money where their mouth is and not say, oh, well, I promise to never do anything in the future with him. But they need to actually grapple with what they're going to do with the fact that they're professionally entangled today. You know, the American Museum of Natural History has to deal with that today because they're professionally entangled with him because he is still employed by them. Um, his current collaborators, for whom they're still preparing manuscripts or holding active grants, they need to grapple with what that means that they're actually still supporting his scholarship today. Uh, the National Science Foundation that funds all of Brian's research has to grapple with the fact that they're funding someone who's been systematically assaulting undergraduates and graduate students for probably something like 20 years. They have to grapple with the fact that they're funding him today. What would that look like? What's, what's, a, what's a way to deal with this? I mean, it, it, because there doesn't seem to be any kind of 
system in place or it, it, at times it feels like it's not even necessarily something people have have thought about in a serious way um what would an appropriate response look like um and this is where i think it's actually really context dependent right um you know in a case like this where we have ample evidence that um, we're talking about someone who's a systematic abuser and has been doing it for a long time. And I think only a fraction of, of Richmond's offenses are coming to light right now. Um, you know, I think immediate halting of, of any support of him is really important. And I think that it's also really important to think about what it would look like. And this is a, me speaking entirely for myself, not for any collaborators or my institutions or anything, um, but just my own opinion. Uh, you know, I think then the next step would then be uh, his former collaborators uh, working really hard to figure out how to support the trainees that had been supported on those projects and how to make sure that they don't have any lapse in their career trajectories. So I think that's the number one priority is removing these people from our discipline and then working incredibly hard to make sure that we don't see more career trajectory lapses um, like we tend to see when women and people of and women and men of color and white women um, deal with harassment and microaggressions and assault. Now, one of the things that that, that brings me to something really interesting, um, as as we discussed, NSF has threatened to pull funding from 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 institutions that aren't responding appropriately, uh, despite the fact that it's never done so. And in fact, that 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 may not be um, the best solution, right? Because if you're pulling funding from a project, uh, for instance, that Richmond is working on. Uh, it's not just Brian Richmond you hurt, right? It's it's also, you know, many of these collaborators and subordinates, um, some of whom may, may actually have been the targets of his behavior. Uh, so that seems like a really sort of tricky thing to navigate. Um, is anybody looking into ways to, to support these trainees? I don't know. I mean, have you have you heard back? Have you contacted or heard back from the NSF about what they're thinking of doing? Uh, they've offered me an interview um, sometime next week, so I'm hoping to, to talk with them at length about it. That's awesome. Because, um, I mean, again, this is me speaking personally. I don't have, as someone who's a social scientist and life scientist, but not a legal scholar, yeah. um, but certainly, to my mind, the most humane thing would be to, if he's got, uh, if, if somebody in this position, if we take Richmond as an example, um, if he's a sole PI on certain projects, that's obviously tricky because then you have to figure out, well, who would be, is there someone that that um, funding could be passed on to within his institution um, that then could care, continue to carry out, the, you know, that could continue to carry out uh, mentorship of the junior folks that are on that. But there's probably also grants that he's co-investigator on. And so I think the other investigators on the grant could figure out how to redistribute the workload and the, and the funding so that, again, the junior folks are protected and supported and they continue to have great careers. Um, while, again, we make it very clear that, um, you know, that uh, systematically assaulting uh, trainees is not an acceptable thing to do in the field sciences. One of the things your data makes very clear is that it's not just a couple of bad apples. It seems to be happening pretty routinely um, because so many people in that survey uh, responded that they had experienced harassment uh, on a field site. Um, one of the things that I am curious about is how to make the overall environment better. Now, obviously, part of that is 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 removing people who are abusers. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if there are other ways to sort of support uh, trainee scientists. Um. Yeah, I have so many thoughts about this, and some are related to the data and some to other things. I mean, I don't know that we'll ever really know how systematic um, this really is, because, of course, many of our participants could be reporting about the exact same individual. Um, so on the one hand, I think, um, I think it's important to acknowledge that each discrete case that we have in our sample doesn't necessarily represent a discre discrete perpetrator. Um, but on the other hand, I wouldn't want to under-acknowledge um, how many perpetrators there probably are in our discipline, um, because one of the other things that's been really striking about this research is, of course, it's, um, we're very, very protective of our participants, and we never, ever talk about details that we've heard. But, um, you know, there are certain stories in our, in our narratives that we share when we give talks on this and in our upcoming paper. And many times I've had individuals come up to me and immediately say, oh, I know what this is about. This is about X case at X field site. And they're always wrong um, because there are so many similar cases in our discipline. 
you know, of these kinds of, uh, you know, one PI who has a mistress and then systematically preys on all of the trainees or, uh, you know, one PI who preys on the locals and trains the other male students at his site to be similarly dismissive of women. You know, those kinds of stories are ones that it turns out, whether or not they're represented in our particular sample, are things that resonate with a very large number of people who hear who have read our work and um, heard us give talks on this work. Yeah, I mean, some of the stories you were telling me were fairly hair-raising. Um, there was one in particular that, that stuck with me where you were telling me about uh, a male trainee who had witnessed um, the PI essentially going around and assaulting one by one um, all of the female trainees, uh, which just is arresting, not not only because, you know, obviously it's it's horrible, but this guy felt that there wasn't much he could do to stop it without destroying his own career, which sort of gets to the power dynamics of the thing. Um, is there some way, I mean, obviously it's it's good that people feel that their careers won't be destroyed by reporting now, but is there is there some way to sort of strengthen that? Because, um, you know, assuming you get as far as reporting, which is something else your data uh, showed people don't necessarily know how to do. Um, how, how, do you, how do you make it a little bit easier for bystanders to try to prevent this in the moment? Um, part of that is actually bystander training. Um, you know, unfortunately, the literature, for the most part, doesn't support a whole lot of trainings as being useful, um, even though right now a lot of Title IX offices on campuses, in order to be compliant with various federal mandates, are creating online trainings about sexual harassment in the workplace, um, which are usually just sort of horrifying and sometimes comical. Um, but the one training that does seem to be supported and does seem to work really well is bystander training, and it has to be done in person, and it takes a couple hours, but it trains people to figure out how to get outside of their own experience and get outside of their own fears and um, be more responsible for their community. So, I mean, in terms of specific, you know, advice about how to be a bystander, you'd probably have to talk to somebody who, who actually runs those bystander trainings. But there are increasingly campuses now who are deciding that that's going to be one of the major ways that they try to address campus assault. And I think that that can be extended to thinking about, um, you know, the practice of science that occurs in remote sites or sites off campus that includes, you know, observatories, conferences, laboratories, and remote field locations. Yeah, that makes sense. Um where where do we go from here? Um, you know, it sounds like we have a, you have a couple of ideas. Like bystander training seems like a good one. Thinking about increased accountability for one's collaborators. Um, what what other ways can we think about um, solving this? I think the big thing, and this is what I think our our first paper really suggested, um, and I think to uh, our next paper and some of my other collaborations will continue to support, is that. Um, the, what has to happen is a multi-level attack. Um, we need the bottom-up efforts of, you know, the research that folks like um, Julian Rutherford, Robin Nelson, Katie Hines, and I are doing in, um, in uh, the field sciences. We need the kind of multi-level efforts that uh, work with me and Christina Ritchie and Erica Rogers and, and Catherine Lee are doing. Um, but we also actually need the leadership to take a firm stance uh, one of my dreams, and I don't know that this will ever happen because I'm actually at a very conservative institution where I've been told unequivocally by administrators that it would never happen here, but my dream is to see the president of my university stare straight into a camera and say, here are the values at the University of Illinois. Um, microaggressions, harassment, and assault are inconsistent with the values of this campus. If you do those things, we don't want you here because we don't want a culture that is not safe for everyone. And to imagine like, you know, university presidents, professional society presidents, um, you know, even just professors in their classrooms on the first day of classes, making clear, here are my values. These behaviors are inconsistent with those values and there will be consequences if you do those things. That is what actually will really, really change things. But until leaders decide that it's not a career killer to actually stand up for what is right. Um, you know, it's going to be really hard for the bottom-up approach to get a lot of traction. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, obviously, you you want somebody to set the tone for what is appropriate, and that, that usually falls to the leader. Um, 
One of the, one of the other things that I've been thinking about, um, and just as a piece of background, both of my 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 dad and my stepmother are academics, <laughs> so I'm a little bit familiar with the world. Um, but here, out here um, in the private sector, um, I I get harassment training every year. Um, I get told what is and is not appropriate for the workplace in a sort of very specific way, um, which I, you know to me feels a little obvious. <laughs> um, don't make your coworkers uncomfortable. Um, but uh, I, I don't think that that's something that routinely happens in academia. Um, and, and standards have obviously changed quite a bit over the last 20 years about what is and is not workplace appropriate um, as, as, you know, as we've progressed as a society, I guess. Um, is, is, is it possible that part of this, you know, tone setting would just literally be telling people don't do this? <laughs> Because the thing is, is we are, we are starting to have the trainings. Um, we've started to institute non-mandatory sexual harassment trainings at my university, and many, many campuses have non-mandatory ones. And now increasingly, in fact, I think just this past week, we got an email from our president saying, okay, now for mandatory reporters, um, this sexual harassment online training is required. So the issue at this point is not that we're not, we are moving towards a model of training, so again, I'm not convinced that training is, a, is, is effective alone. I think these kinds of things of telling people what is and isn't appropriate behavior and how to actually treat the people around you with respect and kindness has to follow with if you don't do these things, you're out of here. And in academia, I, I often like to joke that academia takes the worst of corporate, um, of corporate standards and leaves the best. So we take all the trainings, we take moving slowly, we take hierarchy, but then we leave consequences. You know, in a corporate setting, if you have a problem and you go to HR, someone could actually lose their job for what they've done to you. Um, in academia, you know, you might, might get a slap on the wrist if you harass or assault somebody. Really, what might happen is you're just going to be told you're no longer allowed to be in the same room with this person, you know. Um, so training to me is not super meaningful unless there's an actual fear of consequences which means there have to actually be consequences. Right. I mean, that's one of the things that we keep see o seeing over and over is that with, with all of these cases, it's not one person. It's several people who have reported to the university over the course of years. And there's like an established behavior pattern, which is why it, it, it qualifies as news, you know, that they've been essentially allowed to run wild <laughs> for, for some, some period of years, sometimes at multiple institutions. Um, right. I, I guess what I'm wondering is, um, I, I suspect we're going to see more of these cases in the future. What, what is the appropriate response to seeing the, this kind of news? Because for me, it was very disheartening to, to see. And, and, and one of the things that you told me that I thought was remarkable is like, no, no, no. <laughs> this is actually better because at least people are saying something now. Mm -hmm. I mean, and generally speaking, I think folks in Title IX offices, um, see increased reports of harassment or assault happening as actually a good sign because it does mean that the reporting mechanism is starting to have one that people believe that they can trust. Um, because right now, for the most part, uh, reporting is not something that very many people would dare to do because of the really severe consequences. Um, there are consequences professionally, certainly, because it could very easily, and in fact, most of the time, I think, does get back to the perpetrator that you've reported. Um, but then it's also mentally re-traumatizing, one, because you have to relive the experience by sharing it with somebody, and two, because you're operating under conditions where people actually don't really believe you. Um, and so the intense mental trauma, as well as um, career dangers of reporting, make it so that it's currently in this culture where with no perpetrator consequences, it's not a viable option. Um, and so I get people emailing me or, you know, tweeting me, asking for advice about what to do when they're harassed or assaulted or dealing with an unsafe working condition. And I very rarely in good conscience say, well, just report it because we don't operate in a place where I feel in any, any individual person's pers like context saying, I know enough about the situation that it would be safe for them and better to report than to figure out a way to get out of there. Right. And that brings us back to the question of consequences, um, because you know, if there aren't a lot of consequences for you as a senior scientist who has had someone report harassment, it becomes easy for you to retaliate, um, to say, oh, well, <clears throat> don't give this student materials to, to finish her PhD. 
um, or, or, you know, to contact the people you know in the community and essentially blackball the student, right? Um, so I, I, I wonder if there's also some way to reduce that kind of um, retaliatory behavior. And this is the place where, again, it has to be up to the people with more seniority and leadership um, to keep that from happening. You know, if I saw um, a senior faculty member uh, keeping a grad student from completing their dissertation, um, you know, whether it seemed like a viable reason or not, I would want, I would immediately sort of the hairs on the back of my neck would go up. I would immediately want to know what exactly is going on that's leading to you trying so strongly to block what they're doing. What are you doing that you're trying to explicitly go after this very junior person's career? Um, and I think we need to be more vigilant. And, and so, again, it's kind of like it's, it's another form of bystander intervention. We need to be paying attention to when we're seeing people with power, um, you know, stomping on those without and, and decide that we're not going to accept that in our house anymore. Is there anything else I should be asking you that I'm not? I wish there was some way that I could I could wrap this up neatly, but it's such a it seems like such a quagmire or a morass or just a widespread problem maybe is the best way to put it that it's hard to to, to wrap up. You know, it is. It's really messy. Um, and you know, I think the only other thing that has been on my mind lately, and I believe this will come up more as we analyze more data sets across more disciplines. Um, is that uh, I think the one other thing we really have to be paying attention to is um, is intersectionality. And so, um, you know, I think people with uh, underrepresented identities, I think, are most at risk of dealing with harassment and bullying and intimidation from folks senior to them. Um, and so I, I, I'm hoping in the future that that really enters into and becomes a major part of this conversation. Um, is thinking about, you know, women of color, thinking about <clears throat> queer women from any racial identity, uh, you know, and people with differing um, ability statuses, uh, because I, I really think that that's where the scholarship needs to go next. Um, and, I, and my thought is that if we're doing that, that's also going to help us in terms of beginning to continuing to move away forward in terms of having the um, the, the bottom up and the top down approaches actually meet somewhere in the middle where we finally have real bystander training, um, real consequences. And, and we start to decide that, that we actually should take some responsibility for our culture and not just let it sail along if it's going in a way that we don't like. All right. Well, I want to thank you again for taking so much time out of your week to speak with me, Kate. This has been very, very helpful. No problem. Thank you so much for contacting me. <laughs> of course. Take care. All right. Thanks. All right. Well, I would like to thank Kate Clancy for being on with us um, to discuss a little bit about maybe ways that we can change incentives and uh, make things a little bit better for uh, for scientists, especially for scientists who are early in their careers. Um, that's our show. That's our show. Um, well, be sure to, if you have not already, subscribe to us on iTunes for GSP. Or you can also listen to us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash for GSP. Feel free to rate us. We like five stars. Yeah, um, but, the but five we'll take is any our, stars. Our preferred amount of stars is five. Um, <laughs> and, and and just tell us in general, like what you think of the show and what you like, and any suggestions. You know, we're we're into it all. And you can also follow us on Twitter. I am at Emily Yoshida. I'm at Ms. Lapato. M. S. Lapato. And we'll be back next week. Um, just Kanye up to our noses, basically. Well, yeah. I mean, we have. I have <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a way to put it <laughs> <laughs> one way to put it uh it's as neutral as i can get right now um all right uh have a great week everybody we'll see you back here next week bye